Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 23, Exodus chapters 22 and 23. Let's continue with our study of Exodus chapter 22 by reading from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22. We're going to read from verse 18 to the end. And if your verse 18 isn't exactly where mine starts, don't worry. All right, depending on versions, there's a couple of verse variation on numbering. We talked about that on a few occasions. You are not to permit a female sorcerer to live. Whoever has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Anyone who sacrifices to any god other than Adonai alone is to be completely destroyed. You must neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner living among you, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You're not to abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them in any way and they cry to me, I will certainly heed their cry. My anger will burn. I will kill you with the sword. Your own wives will be widows. Your own children fatherless. If you loan money to one of my people who is poor, you're not to deal with him as you would a creditor. And you're not to charge him interest. If you take your neighbor's coat as collateral, you're to restore it to him by sundown. Because it's his only garment. He needs it to wrap his body. What else does he have in which to sleep? Moreover, if he cries out to me, I will listen because I'm compassionate. You're not to curse God. You're not to curse a leader of your people. You're not to delay offering from your harvest of grain, olive oil, or wine. The firstborn of your sons you're to give to me. You're to do the same with your oxen and your sheep. It is to stay with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you're to give it to me. You're to be my specially separated people. Therefore, you're not to eat any flesh torn by wild animals in the countryside. Rather, throw it out for the dogs. Well, as quickly and matter-of-factly that we were told of these acts which must immediately bring death upon the offender, beginning in verse 21, we get a series of instructions that reflect God's mercy and, and his compassion, especially upon some particularly vulnerable social groups. Israel is told that they are to welcome and respect the ger, which is Hebrew for strangers, foreigners, non-Hebrews, Gentiles. Now, what this actually is contemplating is a foreigner, a Gentile, becoming a member of Israel. This, this instruction is going to be built upon as we move forward in the law, eventually making it clear just how a foreigner can become a Hebrew and how they're to be considered first-class citizens, no higher nor lower than a natural-born Hebrew. Now, this concept is central to Gentile Christianity because the spiritual manifest manifestation of this instruction is that Gentiles can become spiritual Israelites, so to speak, by becoming spiritual seed of Abraham and being included in Israel's covenants. Remember, even the covenant of Christ, which we call the New Covenant, was given to Israel. Christ then said that by means of faith, Gentiles and foreigners could partake of that covenant. Well, widows and orphans, we're told, are to be treated kindly and with compassion. In fact, God emphatically states that he will become greatly angry with those who abuse or take advantage of such helpless women and children, and there will be severe consequences. The loaning of money to a poor person is considered. And that poor person is to be treated with mercy because the desperate can always be easily exploited. No interest is to be charged. And if that poor person offers his cloak, his coat, as 
security for the money, it must be given back to him in the evening so he isn't cold. The salma, S-A-L-M-A-H, Hebrew, for garment or cloak, was a piece of cloth that wrapped around the body and it was used both as clothing and a blanket. Now often this was a poor person's only possession. Naturally the philosophy here is not to take away the basics of life from a helpless person as a promise for repayment of a loan. I mean, compassion is not optional for Yehovah. It's a major element of his character, and we're to take on his character. Okay? Compassion and mercy are integral and foundational in God's system of justice. In fact, we're warned throughout the Bible that if we expect to be the beneficiaries of Jehovah's compassion and forgiveness and mercy, we're to do likewise with our fellow man, especially the weakest among us. Okay. By the way, please notice something very key here. Okay. This law about lending money applies to Hebrews loaning money to Hebrews. Okay. Or of God's family lending to God's family. Okay. This does not apply to those of God's family lending to money outside of the group. In fact, we even get a definition of what is an often asked question in Christianity. Who is my neighbor? Okay. Here it is made clear that the neighbor is one of God's set-apart people. Okay. That is not to say that those in God's family are given license to treat those outside of the family badly. Right. Mercy is always called for, but God calls for special treatment special priority for those within the community of God. Uh, as much theological error is contained within the Mormon community, we could learn a lot from them about how to operate a community of God. Now, verses 27 and 28 needs to be looked at. First, if you have a King James Bible, it probably says there, you shall not revile the gods. Okay. The word, the reason that was translated is that the word translated into gods is Elohim. Okay. And it can mean gods, little g gods, in the plural. Alright. But that is so far out of context, I'm surprised the excellent translators of the King James Bible chose to translate it this way. There is a form of the word Elohim that is called the plural of majesty. That is, when referring to God Almighty, the El, all right, when making the word El plural, you come up with Elohim, and it often it does not mean more than one, it just means greatness. Okay, hence the scholarly term the plural of majesty. So this verse is obviously referring to Yehovah and Yehovah alone. But then it goes on to say that we're not to curse God, or in some text it says you're not to revile God. Okay? The Hebrew word for curse here, kalal, is exactly the same as when it, back in uh, Exodus 21 we were instructed not to kalal, not to curse our parents. Okay. As members of God's set-apart people, we're not to humiliate him. We're not to try him. We're not to set ourselves up, if you would, of being no-account bums before him. Alright. Um, it's speaking basically of bad or incorrigible behavior and character here. So that's what it means by not to curse God. Right? In this sense. But this is different than the second half of the verse. Which also says not to curse a leader of your people. Doesn't it? 
First half says don't curse God. Second half says don't curse the leader. Well, the second half of that sentence uses an entirely different Hebrew word that is translated as curse. It's arar, A-R-A-R. This means to curse more in the sense we typically think of it. That is, you're not to swear a curse against the leader, either in the sense of invoking something magical or simply wishing harm or evil upon them or even swearing at them All right, in bitterness or anger. Two different senses are used here. So in modern English, this verse basically has the meaning of do not bring disrepute upon the Lord by your bad behavior. And next, don't put a curse upon your leader. That's the sense of it. And the last verses of Exodus 22 enjoins people to give to God their tithes and offerings in a timely manner. We're told not to hold them back for our own benefit, and then give them at our convenience. Right. Further, these people, Israel, who God, in his grace, has separated from the entire rest of the world, are not to eat meat, as so many heathen do, that has been killed by wild animals. Right. God values animals. But men are no more animal-like than God is simply a higher form of a man. Okay, therefore, God does not partake of what man partakes, and man's not to partake of what animals partake. All right, let's go to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to get all the way through this, I think, tonight. So I'm going to read it from beginning to end. Exodus chapter 23. You are not to repeat false rumors. Do not join hands with the wicked by offering perjured testimony. Do not follow the crowd when it does what is wrong, and don't allow the popular view to sway you into offering testimony for any cause if the effect is to pervert justice. On the other hand, don't favor a person's lawsuit simply because he's poor. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey straying, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey which belongs to someone who hates you, lying down helpless under its load. You're not to pass him by, but to go and help him free it. Do not deny anyone justice in his lawsuit just because he's poor. Keep away from fraud. Do not cause the death of the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You are not to receive a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the righteous. You're not to oppress a foreigner, for you know how a foreigner feels, since you were foreigner in those foreigners in the land of Egypt. For six years you were to sow your land with seed, gather in its harvest. But the seventh year you're to let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor among your people can eat. And what they leave, the wild animals in the countryside can eat. Do the same with your vineyard and olive grove. For six days you're to work, but on the seventh day you're to rest so that your ox and donkey can rest and your slave girl's son and the foreigner be renewed. Pay attention to everything I've said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods or even let them be heard crossing your lips. Three times a year you're to observe a festival for me. Keep the festival of matzah. For seven days as I ordered you, you are to eat matzah at the time determined in the month of Aviv. For if it was, for it was in the month that you left Egypt, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Next, the festival of harvest, the first fruits of your uh, effort sowing in the field, and last, the festival of ingathering. At the end of the year, when you gather in from the fields the results of your efforts, three times a year all your men are to appear before the Lord Adonai. You're not to offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my festival to remain all night until morning. You are to bring the best first fruits of your land into the house of Adonai, your God. You are not to boil a young animal in its mother's milk. I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says and do not rebel against him because he will not forgive any wrongdoing of yours since my name resides in him. 
But if you listen to what he says and do everything I tell you, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes ahead of you and brings you to the Amori, the Hiti, the Parisi, the Kinani, the Hivai, the Uvusi, I'll make an end of them. You're not to worship their gods, serve them, or follow their practices. Rather, you are to demolish them completely, smash their standing stones to pieces. You are to serve Adonai, your God, and he will bless your food and water. I will take sickness away from among you. In your land, your women will not miscarry or be barren. You will live out the full span of your lives. I will send terror of me ahead of you, throwing into confusion all the people to whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send hornets ahead of you to drive out the Hivai, the Canaani, and the Hitti from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, which would cause the land to become desolate and the wild animals too many for you. I will drive them out from before you gradually until you've grown in number and can take possession of the land. I will set your boundaries from the Sea of Suf to the Sea of Philistim and from the desert to the great river, for I will hand the inhabitants of the land over to you, and you will drive them out from before you. You're not to make a covenant with them or with their gods. They're not to live in your land. Otherwise, they will make you sin against me by ensnaring you to serve their gods. And let me tell you something. When we get to Joshua and to Judges, this is what you're going to see. This is, this is what happened. Well, we're going to receive now a long series of laws in machine gun-like fashion. All right? They're going to come at us fast and furious. Okay? Most of them are pretty easy to understand and we don't need to examine every one of them, only to read them. All right, as I just have. Now we start with a series of laws that are very general in nature. All right, in the first three verses of this chapter. And the idea is that one is not to be untruthful or partial or unjust. Generally speaking, these verses are really referring to judicial integrity. Okay, that is, they're about the proper behavior for witnesses judges, and the litigating parties. Okay. These verses are broad enough that they could have come right from a modern-day church sermon concerning the generalities of right and wrong. Right. Many of the rules we've encountered so far have been very bound up all right, in ancient Hebrew culture, but these laws, for the most part, are plain, and contemporary and timeless. I mean, such things as don't be a party to, fall, uh, to repeating a false rumor. Don't help someone in validating a lie. Don't do wrong just because the majority wants it. Don't allow what is popular to become what is right. Don't administer justice one way for a rich man and another for a poor man. And interestingly, it is the turning away from these very rules that are the root of our declining societies all over the world. Right? In modern terms, God is speaking against political correctness. He's speaking against relativism, favoritism, tolerance and appeasement even the denial of evil and the injustifies the means mentality. Things that we all deal with every day. Right? Of course, these terms are the very definition and foundation of secular humanism. Right? A political and social philosophy that is the pride of Europe and one that many in America want to see our society adopt. Okay. Secular humanism is the polar opposite of Judeo-Christianity. Okay. If we were to step back 
and be completely honest about it, we would have to admit that it's our human nature to want to follow the crowd. I mean, if it wasn't, Yehovah wouldn't have found it necessary to tell us just what he told us, would he? This list of laws, in fact, ensured something that in the modern church is actually looked down upon. Division. That is, God set out to accomplish something very purposefully. Something that the church has worked very hard to defeat. Okay? The simple fact is that God creates his ideal unity by means of division. While that may sound like double talk, it's the truth. Okay? He sets up principles that are by their very nature dividing lines. Okay? Man is given a free choice to stand on one side or the other. If he stands on the side of God's principles, that he has unity with God, but conflict with man. If he stands on the other, he has unity with men, but conflict with God. The reason that Israel has always been a pariah to the rest of the world is that, generally speaking, they dedicated themselves to obeying Jehovah regardless of the consequences. That automatically puts them in conflict with the world. Okay. The reason the church has steadily lost that power that the Lord gave us is because we've stopped being a pariah. Since the European Enlightenment of the 18th century, it seems as though huh, that the goal of the church has become to make the church as close and attractive to the world as possible. To camouflage itself. Okay? While still maintaining this aura of religiousness. I mean, the current era of the megachurch is simply the culmination of the Enlightenment philosophies and man's desire never to divide. Okay? But always to find ways to unite through compromise. Compromise and consensus has replaced true unity. Okay. Majority rules has replaced God's rules. Tolerance has replaced our obligation to discern between good and evil. Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. Translation, if you're not a pariah to the world, you're not doing what I told you to do. Starting in verse 4, we get some instructions that are usually credited to Jesus as being the first to say them. These next verses are about the humane treatment of the enemy. Love your enemy. Then we get another instruction often thought to be anti-Old Testament and occurring only in the New Testament. Be merciful and help the poor. You see, Yeshua didn't come to abolish the ways of the Torah. He was the most Torah-observant man in the history of the world. Okay? Every saying of Christ came either verbatim or in principle from the Old Testament. Okay? And verse 9, God reminds Israel that they were at one time foreigners and under the cruel and unjust hand of a merciless dictator. And that perhaps the best example of how not to treat a foreigner that has come to live amongst Israel is how they were treated in Egypt. As we discussed before, God was laying the foundation for Gentiles, Ger, to become part of Israel not only in the physical sense by literally becoming Israelites, but also in the future spiritual sense that Yeshua's death on the cross would make possible. Gentile believers join with Hebrew believers by faith and become what Paul calls the Israel of God, spiritual Israel, if you would. 
Next, in verses 10 through 12, we see the principle of the Sabbath applied in the practical, physical, earthly sense. In Genesis, we saw God set up the Sabbath principle of six days of work and then one day of rest. The seventh day he made holy, not symbolically holy, literally holy. See, Christ told his followers, though, that the Sabbath was not made for God, rather God made it for man. So some theologians have tried to make this a conflict whereby we either choose the holiness of the true Sabbath as correct or the practical sense of it as it being a health benefit to mankind. Here again we run into that reality of duality. That every principle of God, his every instruction, his every action has an earthly physical side to it and a heavenly spiritual side to it. The Shabbat was declared holy in a purely spiritual essence. Yet it also served as a very tangible, physical purpose in being a day of rest and rejuvenation, interestingly, for all living things, not just for man. So in verses 10 through 12, we see the Sabbath principle is applied not just to days, and weeks, but also to years. And notice that its benefits are applied to plants, even to the soil it grows in. Okay, Use the ground for six years, then let it rest the seventh. Then it's applied to animals. Work them for six days and allow them to rest the seventh, so that your ox and donkey may rest, it says. Okay, Then finally, to people. And it says that includes Foreigners, Gentiles, work six days, rest the seventh to catch your breath. Now, we've talked about Sabbath before and we'll do it again occasionally. But here's one observation I'd like you to consider. The holiness of the seventh day Shabbat is really only relevant to God's people. Okay, let me explain. There are two basic aspects to the Shabbat. One is a day of physical rest. That's the one we know it the most as. Second, as a day of observance of a God-commanded holy day. That's the one we don't typically. Okay. The first one is all about a physical benefit. The second is all about a spiritual benefit. Because of the way the Lord designed all things, humans, animals, plants, the dirt, a regular rest helps to rejuvenate things physically. One can be an atheist and benefit from resting one day in seven, can't they? But animals, plants, the dirt... And humans who are not part of God's people, follow me, are restricted to only the physical benefit of the Sabbath. If one wants the spiritual benefit of Shabbat, that benefit comes from observing the Lord's command to be holy as I am holy. Then one must be declared part of God's people. Therefore, as a Christian who recognizes the God-ordained benefit of resting one day in seven, you will indeed be blessed from a physical standpoint, no matter what day you choose to rest. The same, frankly, as would an atheist or a plow horse. But there is one day and only one day that brings with it the spiritual benefit that the Lord has ordained, and that is the particular day the Lord has set apart as holy. Just as he set his people apart as holy, and everything else is common, 
So it was one day per week, a specific day called Shabbat, set apart as holy, all the other days are common. That's not me talking. That's the word. Verse 12 was the end of the first category of rules and regulations God was setting up, those between man and man. Now from verses 13 through 20, the second category has begun. And Yehovah is now starting to deal with how man is to relate to him. He starts by reiterating that he will tolerate no other gods. Thus far in the Torah, Israel has been told not to make images of other gods, not to worship other gods, not even to talk about other gods, certainly not invoke the name of other gods. See, the Hebrews were just like us, always looking for loopholes. Is it really an image of God I got here? Okay. I mean, is it really an image of God if I have a statue or a painting of Christ? Do I tithe on my income before or after taxes? Isn't worshiping God the same thing as my sitting and watching someone else sing a Christian song? Isn't my pastor praying for me the same thing as me doing the praying? God was making about as clear as it can get that the Israelites were to have nothing to do or say about other gods, period, and no, there were no loopholes. There were no technicalities. Okay. Beginning in verse 14, the Hebrew religious calendar is set up. And Yehovah ordains three pilgrimage festivals. It doesn't show up in most Bibles. All right. They usually just translate the word as festival, but what it really says is hav. All right, ha, all right, and it just means pilgrimage. All right, so these are three pilgrimage festivals being talked about here. Okay, and in Leviticus we're going to find these festivals to be to be discussed in a lot more detail. In fact, God would eventually set up seven feasts for Israel to celebrate. These three, though, are special because the word hog or Pilgrimage suggests that the Israelites are to journey from wherever they are to a specific place to celebrate these feasts. For now, while they're out in the wilderness, they're simply told to come before the Lord. Right? Presumably meaning the wilderness tabernacle that went with them wherever they went. Later, after settling in the land of Canaan, they will be told to journey from wherever they might be to Jerusalem, home of the temple for these three feasts. And like the instructions we just saw regarding the physical earthly purpose of the Sabbath, we now see the physical national purposes of these three festivals that God is setting up. Oh, they have an enormous spiritual element to them that we won't go into right now, but that's not the purpose of these particular instructions to teach about the, the, the spiritual prophetic character of these three feasts. These are all about Yehovah ordaining a special set of three celebrations that sets Israel apart from all other nations. And it goes a long way in establishing a unique national identity for Israel. Well, these three festivals are all agricultural based. And therefore, since spring is looked at as the beginning of the agricultural yearly cycle, the first festival is a spring festival. The first pilgrimage feast, called the Festival of Matzah, is sometimes also called Passover, but that's not really technically correct, because Passover is a separate one-day feast. Right? And it occurs in the spring. Okay? And that's a time to celebrate, this, this Feast of Matzah is a time to celebrate God's deliverance of his people from the slavery in Egypt. The second pilgrimage feast, known as the Feast of Weeks, or in Hebrew Shavuot, occurs 50 days following the Feast of Matzah. And it's to be, it's to celebrate the second harvest of the year. Christians have a different name for this holiday. What is it? 
Pentecost. That's right. Okay. The third pilgrimage festival is the Feast of Ingathering, also known as Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. We just, just went by that, just in the last few days. Sukkot is a fall feast. It represents the final ingathering, that is, the last of the harvest is taken in before winter begins. Well, by the time we reach Leviticus, like I said, Jehovah will establish, have established precisely seven feasts. Now, every ancient culture had established feasts and days honoring their deities, usually centering on the agricultural cycles. But the difference is that these seven feasts, beginning with the three that were just ordained here in chapter 23, are God-ordained. Okay. Now, sometimes in both the Old and New Testament, we're going to see, instead of the word feasts, they'll substitute the phrase appointed times to refer to these special holy days, which is certainly a correct translation. But as we study God's word, we have to be very careful to notice the difference between men's appointed times and God's appointed times. Okay. Disregarding this difference has caused some enormous confusion right, in biblical interpretation and teaching. Some teachers have St. Paul declaring the end of the biblical feasts, appointed times, when in fact he is but cautioning against observance of men's appointed times, not God's appointed times. Right. And at other moments, telling his listeners that the rituals and procedures the rabbis had devised for some of the festivals was not from, from God. Okay. We must never think that the New Testament at any point invalidates these holy days. After all, the proof of it is all right, that Jesus himself participated in all the biblical festivals. All right. And most of the recorded major events of his ministry occurred on one or another of these holy feast days. Okay. I mean, Yeshua died during Passover, was raised on first fruits, and sent the Holy Spirit on Shavuot. You can't get much more specific than that. Okay, the last half of verse 19 has a puzzling instruction that even the Hebrews have argued over for centuries. You're not to boil a young animal in its mother's milk. As a tradition... The Jews have enforced this by effecting a prohibition against serving or eating meat and dairy products at the same time. Okay. Now, depending on just how stringent a certain Jewish sect might be, um, one would either have to wash and purify utensils that touched meat before those same utensils could touch dairy products or just as typically, utilize completely separate sets of utensils right, for, for these things. In some cases today, meat products and dairy products have to be kept in completely separate refrigeration units. Right? So those of you going to Israel, don't order a ham and cheese sandwich unless you want to get some frowns directed at you. Okay. Now, actually the sad part of it is you can get ham and cheese sandwiches all over Israel. Right? That's the truth. You can. I wouldn't recommend it. Well, the why of this law, why, has generally been attributed to some kind of animal cruelty Jehovah was trying to avoid. I mean, going out, milking a cow, and then taking that cow's own calf and cooking it in that same milk, I, I think is a tad tacky. All right. Um, but, but I also... But it's also thought that this may have been a well-known custom of pagans during worship of some heathen deity, so God ordered the practice abandoned by his people. There's really no agreement on where this, what, what the whole point of this is, to be honest with you. Okay, suddenly in verse 20, the tone of the chapter changes. And Jehovah moves from ordaining rules and laws and regulations to giving some promises to Israel. He says that he's going to send an angel, a malach. 
in Hebrew to prepare the way for Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. And that the people are to obey this angel. Because Jehovah says that this particular angel carries his name. In other words, this angel either carries God's full authority or, as is more often taught, this angel was a manifestation of God himself. Now, we could argue which of these views is correct till the cows come home, but I don't think it would do any good all right, or change much. The thing I'd like you to take from this, though, is the inscrutable mystery that is our God. I mean, I've about come to the conclusion that if I'm pretty sure I can comprehend him, I must be I must have it wrong. Kind of made that a rule of thumb for myself. If I think I've got it down, can't be right. right? God will manifest himself however he decides, whether as an angel, a cloud, a burning bush, whatever he wants. Right? The fact that we have a hard time squaring that with our generally accepted doctrine of the Trinity, whereby we've decided that every visible physical form of God must be Jesus, I just don't think this worries him very much. Right? I mean, and we really shouldn't be too concerned about it either. Some things about God just are, and we simply need to accept it. Okay. In any case, Israel is to be unquestionably obedient to this angel. And just as important as Israel begins to encounter this list of nations given in verse 23, they're to avoid worshiping those nations' gods. In fact, they're to destroy them. They're to smash, says the various stone altars and monuments erected to these false deities. And if they'll do that, then God will be an enemy to Israel's enemies. Now, Jehovah tells them that if they will serve him, he'll make them very fruitful. He'll keep them from falling ill. He'll make them multiply very rapidly by keeping the Hebrew women from miscarrying, by making the Hebrew population in general live out their full lifespans. Further, we're told God is going to put terror in the hearts of Israel's enemies even before they arrive. In other words, all these nations are going to have an irrational, supernatural fear of Israel that will cause them to run away. Of course, the hordes of stinging hornets the Lord is going to send against the various inhabitants of Canaan that might consider staying, even in the face of that fear, going to be pretty painful. And another good reason to get out of Dodge. Um, then verse 29 says something very interesting. God is going to lead Israel to such a swift and certain victory that it actually becomes necessary to slow them down. Okay. Therefore, he's not, it says, going to allow Israel to defeat Canaan in but a single year, as apparently they would have otherwise been perfectly able to do. Why? Because if all of the inhabitants of Canaan flee at once, the land will go fallow from lack of care, and then wild animals will overtake it. So God is going to have Israel take over Canaan step by step at a rate that they can assume proper stewardship over the rich land and resources that God has prepared for them. Then in verse 31... We're told what the boundaries of that land that God is giving them is going to encompass. And it's going to go from the Gulf of Aqaba, a finger of the Red Sea. Where are we? Right, uh, let's see. Right? Yeah, here we are. Right down here on this map. See this little stretch of blue down here? Little finger of the Red Sea called the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, and... It's going to go to the domain, east, uh, rather west, to the domain of uh, the Philistines. All right. Um, it's going to go to the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to go north, to, all the way up to the Euphrates River. All right. And the wilderness to the south is probably talking about the Negev 
this area down here, all right, bordering the Sidai Peninsula. Now, this is a huge tract of land we're talking about here. By the way, one which Israel has yet to ever fully possess. Now, verse 32 speaks of not making a covenant with any of the Canaanite peoples. In other words, no peace treaties, no purchasing land, no appeasements of any kind. Why? Verse 33 tells us that if Israel allows these various tribes of Canaan to stay there, their mere presence will make you sin against me by ensnaring you to serve their gods. And as I said at the beginning, during the time when Joshua was leading Israel, and later, particularly later, in their human idea of mercy, they ignored God. And they made treaties. They allowed intermarriage. They practiced tolerance. Right? And Israel suffers from this from that disobedience to this very day. Okay? While it may be very difficult for us to swallow the reality that it that had Israel followed God's instructions when invading when invading uh, Canaan, there would be no Middle East crisis today. Okay. What we have been witnessing now, as we come to a close of chapter 23, and by way of preparation for chapter 24, what we've been witnessing since chapter 19 of Exodus is the making of a covenant, or in more exacting biblical language, the cutting of a covenant. Chapter 24 now, which we'll take up next week, is all about the ratification of this covenant that has been spelled out over the last few chapters. Now, a covenant is far more than a contract. Okay? It's far more than a legal agreement between two parties. In the Bible, a covenant creates a binding together of the parties, a union of sorts. Okay? Some scholars have likened the covenant process here in Exodus is to a marriage. I'd argue with that a little bit, but yet the union element of a covenant indeed reminds one to a degree of the union which occurs in human marriage. In Exodus 19 through 23, which we just concluded, we saw the terms of the covenant between Israel and Yehovah being laid out. And, by the way, the style of its structure very much resembles ancient Middle Eastern treaties and pacts among peoples and nations, particularly those treaties of the highly developed culture of the Hittites. Archaeologists and papyrologists, papyrologists are those who study ancient documents from the standpoint of both writing methods and content to help determine when a document was written and who might have written it and so forth. From that, there is a wealth of written treaties and covenants from ancient times that we're able to compare with the biblical covenants. And while there are many similarities which enable us to be certain of the era the covenant of Moses occurred, Right? There are some glaring differences between those treaties, common treaties, and the Mosaic Covenant written at Mount Sinai. First, among those differences, no covenant ever discovered from any ancient culture was in effect a written agreement between a man and a god. Second, every document ever found that comprised what we might term a law code, such as the famous Hammurabi code, separated the people into classes. It began with that assumption. Okay? With varying degrees of privilege and deference to the rich and royal over the general population, then of course down the line, it talked of the poor, what their rights were, and of course, at the bottom of the heap, the slaves. Third, these law codes tended to make religious ritual and regulation separate from civil law. See, separation of church and state 
right, was the way that the pagans organized their systems. Religion was compartmentalized, made into its own little world, if you would, and used at that time when the people dealt with their gods and at no other time. Okay. Obviously, the covenant of Moses was a complete departure from all this, practically opposite of all these other systems. God himself was a covenant partner with the people of Israel. God did not ordain a class structure of people. He actually sought to destroy the lines, even, between a slave and a free man. Right? And he made religion and civil law one and the same, inseparable. That is, all justice, all mishpat, comes from God. So the covenant of Moses was quite unique for that era. It was even a departure from the previous covenants that God had made with Noah, and then with Abraham. Because in both of those much earlier covenants, they were but one-sided promises. Okay? And the promises were God's promises. Okay? The covenants of Noah and Abraham were unilateral. The covenant of Moses was bilateral. That is, both sides had obligations and responsibilities. The covenants to Noah and Abraham were unconditional. Nothing man could do could cause God to retract any element of those promises. The covenant of Moses was conditional. The people of Israel had to follow through with their end of the deal. The terms of the covenant or a whole variety of disciplinary actions or even temporary withdrawal of certain of those blessings by Jehovah would occur, and they eventually did. One final point and we'll move forward. Law codes in those ancient days, as now, tended to be very formal, very cold, very legalistic in their structure. Unquestioned obedience without necessarily even understanding the reason for a particular law was required. Although it might not have occurred to you, the way the laws of God were given to the people of Israel was full of warmth and just rich with symbolism. Okay. And the laws were given with a lot of narration, a lot of explanation. Why? Because it's the principles behind the laws that God is teaching that's important. The purpose of the law, as with all the Torah, was to teach. And while many of the details of the Mosaic laws are very Hebrew in their cultural context, the principles behind every one of these laws is timeless. Right? And these principles are applicable to all humans in any culture. Because in these laws that we have been reading, and we'll read more of, Yehovah has expressed the basics of the way his created universe operates. And we trespass against these principles at our own risk. Okay. Next week we'll examine Exodus chapter 24 and see just how this covenant between God and Israel was formally ratified. Okay? I'll do it for tonight.